Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. When you consider physical intimidation, when you consider something physical that may cause you to tremble in fear, what for you comes to mind? For those to which Isaiah was writing, there was an an impending and unstoppable force in their midst. The Babylonians were not just a threat, but with the power that they had and the direction that they were headed, for what Isaiah, Isaiah was speaking towards, it would be a guaranteed wiping out of God's people. The attack from the Babylonians wouldn't be a battle of equals, but a complete and total devastation of the Israelites' current livelihood. Now, personally, I can't really relate to the fear of war, or even worse, the threat of an attack that you know cannot be stopped. Like most people in this room, I can imagine that understanding of that imminent physical harm or physical attack, you have to think of, of something else, right? The idea of, of war and attack doesn't really relate. And so as I was considering that, for me, my mind goes to where I grew up in the mountains of Montana. And if you're hiking in the mountains of Montana, that imminent physical threat is what? The bear. If you ever spend time in Glacier National Park or other trails and mountain ranges across Montana, the warning signs for bears are everywhere. At every trailhead, beware, bears. In every map of the trail, beware of the grizzly bear. In every gift shop, they sell bear spray and 
jingling devices to try and warn off the bears that there's humans in their midst. You simply don't go hiking in the Montana mountains without some awareness that this is the bear's domain and it's wise of you to avoid this monstrosity of a creature. And as you prepare to spend time in the mountains of Montana, a healthy dose of fear of this massive claw-wielding beast is warranted. The wise person considers the fact that they cannot take on a bear if one is encountered. Even if you're a hulk of a man, you're not winning a fight against a grizzly bear. If you're getting ready for your hike in the mountains and everyone's getting their things ready, making sure they have their jingle jangly things and their walking stick and their bear spray, and you look over and you ask your friend why they aren't getting their bear deterrent items, and they respond, I'm not scared, I'll take on the bear if we see one. First, you're like, are you serious? <laughs> and then you laugh, right? How, how foolish, right? You're not taking on the bear. Simple physics and the claws that I saw in the gift shop are telling me you're not winning against the bear, my friend. Now, as we consider the might of a bear let us consider even more greatly the might and strength of the Lord. No matter what fear lies in your midst, consider how much greater are the works and ability of our God. The one who in verse 15 in our passage this morning says, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Like the friend who is foolishly unafraid of a bear, likely out of ignorance, if they see the bear, they're running. But so too are we who are his creation that do not fear the Lord. We see throughout Scripture that the Lord is worthy to be feared, and that fear in the Lord is in fact wisdom. From Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And Psalm 33.8, let all the earth fear the Lord. 
let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And so our response to the Lord as believers, as we see in Psalm 33, with a healthy fear of the Lord, who wisely fear his might and all that he can do, is to stand in awe of our God. We praise the Lord who is almighty and powerful, who lays waste to his enemies and rejoice in the beautiful and wonderful restoration that he provides through his servant, Jesus Christ. As we consider these verses then this morning in chapter 42, we're going to break it up into two sections. First, looking at verses 10 through 12 which is a summons to rejoice. And then we'll take a look at verses 13 through 17, which provides an explanation of the restoration of the Lord. As we consider this text this morning, let's remember then or recall the context of this letter or this uh, from the prophet Isaiah, what surrounds this this passage. The, The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the voice of the Lord to a people that are, due to Hezekiah's short sightedness, soon to be taken into exile. But amidst that discipline from the Lord for the sins of his people and his kings, we see from last week, In the first nine verses of chapter 42, the promise of the Lord's chosen servant. Behold, it says, or look at my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In summarizing what came directly before this passage, the Lord through Jesus Christ, will establish justice, yet come in humility and compassion. He says in verse 42, or chapter 42, verses 8 and 9, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He is telling of the coming of the Christ who will restore his people for all time. He's providing the prophet Isaiah that in the short term, the Israelites will be exiled and that eventually they will receive the promise of their homeland. But most importantly... Those who trust in the Lord will be fully and completely restored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is a greater restoration, a full redemption of the people that God has called his own. As those who ascribe Jesus Christ, the chosen servant, as the way, the truth, and the life. 
And so the prophet Isaiah tells of the Lord's chosen servant and then commands the proper response in our first set of verses this morning to rejoice. We can treat verses 10 through 12 here this morning as a, as a chorus, pointing backward to what was discussed at the beginning of chapter 42, the promise of his chosen servant and his justice. But also, we can look beyond verse 12 and see that it points forward to the restoration that he promises. As we see in verse 16, he is leading the blind, turning darkness into light, rough places into level ground. He will not forsake his people. And so, For who God is and what he will do, the call in verses 10 through 12 is to rejoice. This is the good news, and he is worthy to be praised. If we look back to Isaiah chapter 24, verses 14 through 16, we see a similar call of praise from his people. It says, They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Similar to... What I just read in Isaiah chapter 24, here in chapter 42, we see a handful of directional references to those called to praise and rejoice. If we remove the praise references or the praise languages in this set of verses, we see a list. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it the coastlands and their inhabitants, the desert and its cities, the villages that Kedar inhabits, the inhabitants of Selah. It says, declare his praise in the coastlands. These directional references are meant to summarize the people all around Jerusalem. Isaiah looks west, to the coast of the Mediterranean, and to the south, to the Red Sea, two channels of commerce through which Israel saw evidence of many other cultures. By the land of the south, there was contact with Egypt, and to the north, the empires of Mesopotamia. But nations much further away were accessible by sea, To the east, Isaiah sees Kedar, the name of Ishmael's second son from Genesis chapter 25, which was the name for a coalition of tribes of the Arabian desert. He looks to Selah in the mountain regions, telling them to shout from the top of the mountains. And finally, to the northernmost region in the coastlands. 
Interestingly, the final two regions that Isaiah points to here, Kedar and Selah, are in fact Arab territories. The city Arabs of Kedar and the wilderness Arabs in Selah of the mountain regions. And he's saying in this set of verses that there is coming a day when the Arabs will be worshiping the true God in Jesus Christ. To most of these people, that would be an unimaginable possibility. You mean even those people will worship our God? So Isaiah looks west and looks south. He looks east and then he looks north. And he summons all to sing to the Lord a new song, to lift up their voice, to sing for joy and declare his praise. Like the Great Commission in which Jesus is telling his disciples to go make disciples of all nations, Isaiah is providing that through the Lord's chosen servant, Jesus Christ, all of the world will know and praise the name of the Lord Almighty. And my prayer, Buffalo City Church, is that we would be a people who are consistently singing the praises of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That the song of our praises to the Lord Almighty would be echoed from his church here in Jamestown that we would see and proclaim to a people in the north, in the south, in the east, in the west, that we serve a mighty and wonderful God. As his chosen people, adopted into his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, we are to sing his praises. Corporately, together, we're invited each Sunday to come together and sing his praises. We don't join together in corporate worship and sing the songs that we do because it's something we just like to do. That we decided at some point, oh, music would be a nice component to this thing that we do. No, we do it because we are, in fact, as we see in these verses, to sing the praises of our God, to lift up our voices to the Lord, to give glory to the Lord and declare His praise. What a beautiful expression during Sunday morning to hear the chorus of voices the full and true worship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our worship, as we know, however, extends beyond Sunday morning to our every day. Are you finding yourself singing the praises of our God in your moments between our corporate family worship? Are you lifting up your voice to the Lord and giving honor and praise due His name?
If we are living in this command, it should be very clear that we trust and rest in the promises of our God and cannot help but sing his praises. Church, I want to provide here that I'm encouraged by what what I'm seeing amongst the people of Buffalo City Church. In the corporate worship that I'm observing on Sunday mornings, and in conversations that I'm participating in and observing amongst our body, are a people hungry and excited to praise the name of the Lord our God. A people eager to share life together and point one another to the truth of the Lord that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The command to praise here in verses 10 through 12 is not dependent on our situation or circumstance. The the prophet Isaiah is telling a soon-to-be-battered, fearful people to rejoice. Not with the caveat to praise him when things get better. Not to praise him if this happens. But to praise him because he is God because of what he has done and what he is going to do through Christ Jesus. So the what of this section is to rejoice. The who is everyone who trusts in the Lord, which also includes the where, the everywhere. That all of his people from everywhere should praise the name of the Lord our God. And so now let's look back then at what the rest of the text provides to us. Starting in verses 13 through 15. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor, I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. So we see this call for praise to our God followed by a section on the justice of the Lord. He is restoring his people, which we will see later here in verse 16. But first he must lay waste all that is opposed to him and his ways. Check out something within that. In verse 14, summarized as 
the Lord being patient and slow to anger. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. As an impatient person, I'm in awe of the Lord's patience with his people. Unlike the parent who flies off the handle their instant, their child does something that the parent has warned them not to do. Unlike our cancel culture, which lurks for one mistake to put a person on trial in the court of public perception and quickly lay waste to any accomplishment or notoriety. No, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Consider that within the context of the whole of Scripture. If you've been following with us in the To the Word Bible reading plan that we've provided at the beginning of the school year, you'll have journeyed through quite a bit of the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges and Kings and some of the minor prophets and Amos and Hosea, Jonah and Joel. And over and over and over again, his chosen people turn from the Lord and his ways. And thankfully, over and over and over again, he patiently calls them to repent and believe. Through many different people and many different ways for hundreds of years over and over and over again. His mercy is unfailing. His forgiveness is unmatched. And it is why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter asked, Lord, how often will how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> Jesus says, do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The Lord is patient and slow to anger even for a people who turn against him again and again and again. But as merciful and patient and forgiving as the Lord is, for him to deliver on his promises for his people, he must put an end to the sin that is causing suffering and pain. He must show his power and his might to reveal to a people that the idols that they have constructed are not God and that he alone is God. He is a mighty God that will stop at nothing to reveal himself to his people. 
And like the inevitability and unstoppable force of the Babylonians carrying these people into captivity, or the inevitability of the grizzly bear in the Rocky Mountains being undefeated against but minor man, God's restoration is inevitable. The things that God does, no one else can do. The devastation that the Lord can conjure to accomplish his purposes is unmatched. No one else can lay waste to mountains and hills, dry up their vegetation, turn rivers into islands, and dry up the pools. This is to remind us of the strength and the might of our God. It's, it's interesting, these concepts here, this idea of drying up vegetation, turning rivers and drying up pools. Water is constantly spoken of as the source of life. And so even in this small verse here, the, the Lord is reminding people that Even the water, which is the genesis of life for us, is provided by the Lord. That he is the one who is the giver of life. That in an instant, he can make a lush, thriving region into a barren, desert wasteland. He is the giver and taker of life. This devastation that he speaks of, however, is, again, not for nothing. It's not just because he can. It's because it's what it takes for him to deliver and restore his people. This devastation is coupled with an unmatched and unrivaled eternal restoration that only he can provide. Verse 16, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. There is nothing that he will not do to restore his people to himself. The things here are not things that can be offered outside of God. Who or what else can guide the blind, can turn darkness into light and rough places into level ground? Consider that for a moment. Rest in that truth, Buffalo City Church. Maybe that first point didn't resonate with you. The the command to rejoice, to sing to the Lord a new song, to lift up your voice, to sing for joy. You think to yourself, I don't feel that. I don't think you could sit here in my shoes with what I've gone through these past few weeks or these past few months and tell me 
to rejoice. It's pretty difficult to be commanded to sing and have joy, have joy when you're fighting the battles that have been laid in front of me. But the response to that is, is right here. Again, your, your praise isn't circumstantial or situational. And we should instead consider what God says He is doing and will do for us. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, and paths that they have not known I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. If you believe that is true for you, that your God will in fact deliver you from darkness, that your God will in fact make the rough places smooth, if you believe that is true, if you step out in faith in that truth, you cannot help but rejoice and sing for joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that our God, your God, is saying that to you? Consider that you once were blind, blind to the truth and to your sinfulness, and that He has guided you to better places, and that he will continue to guide you. Consider that you were once in utter darkness, not knowing the path to life. Yet he illumined your path and turned your darkness into light. Do you believe, Buffalo City Church, that he will not forsake you? I look around at our world to the people that I interact with on a daily basis that are struggling to find and see hope in a dying and hopeless world. A world that constructs idols, markets them, and sells them quicker than you can shake a stick at. And I've seen people put their trust in the next best thing to Deliver them to what they think is joy. Something that they think will solve all of their problems and they shout the joys of that from the mountaintops. But it turns out that that pursuit, that that thing is really only temporary happiness. And that thing that they were pursuing was quickly destroyed. That, that thing fades when their desire to pursue it further is gone. Because the only thing that was truly giving it life was their effort and energy towards it. But we see in the power of the word that has become flesh. God's chosen servant, Jesus Christ 
the only thing that truly and completely redeems and restores our brokenness. The only one that can turn our darkness into light, our rough places into level ground, can lead us on paths that we have not known. Our God is a God of restoration. A God making dead things alive and eventually making all things new. Stopping at nothing to draw his people to himself. He is our hope and our deliverer. Let us rejoice in that. So we've seen a command to rejoice with a promise for restoration provided completely and fully in the person and work, the Lord's chosen servant, Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, I'd like to circle back around to the three key elements that Caleb mentioned we should see and consider throughout Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 through 55. Ideas that we have seen and will continue to see and explore in this sermon series in Isaiah. First, let us grow in our awe of God as we behold or look at him. Now, unlike many of the other sections we have explored in Isaiah, there isn't the direct use of the term behold in our text this morning. However, I think we can quickly see Five things in looking at the Lord and the attributes ascribed to him in this passage that we can, in fact, be in awe of. Each of which we've actually already unpacked and and mentioned earlier. First, we can be in awe of his chosen servant. How beautiful and wonderful is the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before the coming of our Christ. May we be in awe that he was provided to deliver his people by living a perfect life that we cannot live, by dying the death that we deserve, and by being raised on the third day so that we may have life and life everlasting. Second, let us be in awe of his patience and forbearance. We looked at it in in verse 14. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. How patient our God is with his people. Third, let's be in awe of his power and strength. The God who created all things and put all things into motion is a God who, as we see in verse 15, can lay waste to the mountains and hills and dry up all vegetation. A feat and ability only ascribed to our God. Fourth, let us be in awe of his perfect 
justice. No sin goes unpunished. He doesn't just forget sin. He ensures it is dealt with fully and completely. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, the sin of the world was handled fully and completely. No one sin was left unpaid for. As Christ hung on the cross, he proclaimed, It is finished. It is paid in full. Finally, let us be in awe of his faithfulness which we'll actually consider in the the second point of this conclusion, that throughout Isaiah we should be encouraged by God's faithfulness to his people, even in hostile circumstances. I will never leave or forsake you. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Even in the discipline of the Lord, exiled by the Babylonians, he was not leaving his people or forgetting his promise to them. Do you need to be reminded of that truth? That your God will never leave or forsake you. Are you in a rut where it seems like the next worst thing is lurking around the corner? Maybe you currently feel exiled by God. I encourage you not to believe that lie. But be reminded of these words from the Lord in verse 16. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. No matter what, the Lord is calling you to repent and believe, waiting as the Father waits for the prodigal son to bring you into his presence. And finally, we're to marvel at Christ crucified. All of this points towards the final and ultimate restoration provided in the cross of Christ. May our moments in our day-to-day not pass without considering the cost of our sin and the full payment provided for it in Christ Jesus, his chosen servant. Let us gaze constantly and consistently at the cross. And despite the horrific, painful, blood-soaked payment, let us see and know and rejoice that our Savior lives. As we go from here this morning, Buffalo City Church, let us sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. With our lips and our lives, let us lift up our voices, sing for joy and give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. For our God has sent his chosen servant in Jesus Christ, and our restoration is assured in his promise.
Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the command to rejoice in the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that your truth can be written in our hearts and that we can know completely and fully that you are a mighty God whose restoration is assured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord God, as we look to praise your name, Lord God, as we look to consider what you've delivered us from, let us be quick to humbly acknowledge our sin, repent, and believe. To not be distracted by our by or trust in created things, but to trust in Christ and Christ alone. May our thoughts and actions flow from being in awe of you and what you've done for us. May we bear with one another in love while clinging to the truth of who you are, what you've done for us, and knowing that our restoration is complete in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are transforming us each day more into your likeness. May we pursue personal holiness in prayer, being washed by and considering constantly the word of God, which you have provided to us. Let us not grow weary of doing good, but sing to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you and love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.